name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. It wasn't too long ago that John Bull on Wednesday nights led us through a study of Nabil Qureshi's book, Seeking Allah and Finding Jesus, where Nabil was a follower of Allah. And uh, he kind of chronicles his almost torturous journey from following Allah to discovering that it was really Jesus, the one that he had been seeking and not Allah. At the heart of the Christian faith is this central question, okay? And here's the question. Just who is Jesus? That's at the center of, of the Christian faith. And I'm, I'm sure you're not surprised by me saying that, but you may be surprised that Christians don't all agree on the answer to that question. People who claim to follow Jesus answer that question in, in a variety of different ways. And as a result, there's a huge diversity amongst uh, those of us who claim to follow Jesus and religious thought and the teachings of Jesus. Let me illustrate. Let me illustrate for you. If you were here this morning and you were a Jehovah Witness, then, then you would believe that Jesus is the first spirit person God ever created. And uh, so God creates this spirit person, and his name is Jesus. And he was so great and so wonderful, God called him his son. That's the reason why he's the only begotten of John chapter 3, verse 16, according to Jehovah Witness theology. Jesus is this spirit-created being, the first one God ever made. He was so great, God called him son, and it was him that God sent to become a person uh, here so many years ago. The Mormons teach that God was a man once like us in some other planet, on some other world, and he... Um, evolved into being God over our planet. And so our God was a man like us on another world at some point. Now he's our God and he has uh, all these spirit children up in his heaven space. And when he conceives those children, he puts them into people that we conceive through natural means. And so God is up in heaven putting his spirit children into us when we, when we conceive children. Jesus is the first child that God ever conceived. And uh, so that's who Jesus is for Mormons. They, they also believe that God, uh, our God, the God over our planet, he actually came here physically, had sex with Mary. And so he provided the body into which he put Jesus, his first spirit child, uh, into Muslims teach that Jesus was just a human prophet. He was on the level of all other prophets that have come. The Christian scientists, their view of Jesus is so bizarre, to be honest with you. Not that you could get more bizarre than some of the things I've shared with you. Um, it, theirs is so bizarre, I really don't even know. I, I couldn't, it has something to do with consciousness or whatever, and I, I, can't, I can't even explain it to you. I decided I wasn't going to even try. In, in our story today... This is really the central question. Who, who are you, Jesus? So if you happen to be our guest this morning, I want to tell you we're studying the book of John. It's the fourth book of the New Testament, of the new part of your Bibles. And John was one of Jesus' followers, and he wrote down his, his interactions, his relationship with Jesus in this book we call John. We're studying that. We're at the 10th chapter. And, uh, and what we find in the verses that we're going to look at in the text that we're going to look at this morning, we find an exchange between Jesus and some of the Jewish leadership. And this is what they say to him. How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now, the word Messiah, for those of you that may not know, the word Messiah simply means anointed king. They had been looking for an anointed king to come from the hand of God. And they're basically saying, are you this anointed king that we've been waiting for? Plainly tell us. Plainly give us the answer to that question. 
Now, as the story continues from where we've been, you remember last week we found ourselves in Jerusalem, most likely on, on the tail end of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration that the Jews did every year. God had mandated it. It was a, it was a remembrance of their leaving Egypt, and they would live in tents for, for eight days, kind of celebrating God's getting them out of Egypt. Uh, we were in the tail end of that when Jesus has an exchange with some of the Pharisees, and he talks about himself being the shepherd, the true shepherd and the good shepherd. And he talks about us as sheep as well. That was our talk last week. Now, this morning, though we're in the same chapter, we're going to find ourselves two and a half months later at the Feast of Dedications. Okay, so this is a different time frame. And so you might, if you were reading John chapter 10, the theme is the same all the way through the chapter. And I think the reason for that is John took... Uh, this exchange between Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles, and then he would take this exchange between Jesus and the Feast of Dedication, and since the, thematically they're kind of the same, talking about sheep and shepherd, he, he puts them together, even though what we're going to look at this morning is, is two and a half months from what we talked about last week. Jesus is back in Jerusalem. He's obviously left and come back. And he's back in Jerusalem for what is known as the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication was on the 24th day of Kislev in the Jewish calendar, which roughly corresponds with the 22nd day of December for us. So this day, this feast would last for eight days, begin, uh, I'm not sure what day it began, probably began on a Sabbath, but it would begin and then it would go eight days. It was usually cold when this took place. The Feast of Dedication is not a feast that's commanded for us to, be, to keep by God. It's not even in your Bibles at all as a feast. It was something that the Jews took upon themselves to celebrate the restoration of the temple back in 164 B.C., Maybe you'll remember this from our study of Daniel, but back in Daniel's day, or back when Daniel was kind of giving us a historical lesson, he talked about Antiochus Epiphanes, who was going to come, and he was really going to desecrate the Jewish people. In fact, when he came, he, uh, he, was, he was brutal. They estimate that he killed maybe as many as 100,000 of the Jews in Jerusalem at the time. He ransacked the city. He was constantly fighting them, and uh, he outlawed the Jewish religion. He instituted the worship of Zeus. And this you'll probably remember what they call the abomination of the temple. He went into the Jewish temple and he took a pig and he sacrificed it on the Jewish altar, thus desecrating the temple. Now, during that time, there was a, a Jewish priest by the name of Matthias Maccabee. And Matthias Maccabee was the one who, I guess, if you would, was the lightning rod. He stood up to the to Antiochus' army from Syria. He stood up to them, and uh, he killed one of uh, one of. Antiochus emissaries, and, and then him and his sons began a, a terrorist, if you would, a, 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 rogue, a, a rogue opposition to, to what Syria was doing under the Solution Army. And uh, he, he fought, they fought, his son Judah was called uh, the Hammer, so you can just imagine, they, they really, really hurt the Solution Army. And, and so they eventually won. They, they, they left. It's kind of like you remember when, when Russia was in Afghanistan and the, the terrorist attack against them. Eventually, Russia left without, I mean, they just left the country. And that's exactly what happened here. Uh, Antiochus' army just left. And uh, so this was like a, a year, two, three years, excuse me, of guerrilla warfare. They kick out the Syrian Solution Army and, uh, and they restore the temple. Now, we find this story in First and Second Maccabees. It's not going to be in your Bible, but it's a great historical book. I'd encourage you, I'd encourage you to read it. But they, they rededicated the temple. So after the army, uh, Antiochus' army had left, they went into the temple. They were ridding themselves of all the, the stuff that desecrated the temple. And they found some oil, and they had enough oil to light the lamps of the temple for one day. So they lit the, the temple lamps, and according to the historical uh, report, the lamps burned for eight days, which is obviously almost kind of miraculous. And that is where this Feast of Dedication came from. It was the, it was the remembrance of the Jews dealing with Antiochus, cleaning up the temple and restoring it to, to worship for God. And so this, this festival became known as the Festival of Dedication. It also became known as the Festival of Lights. And you know it better as Hanukkah. 
So, you know, in, in our culture today, we have to celebrate everything. I'm not saying that's bad or anything, but, you know, at Christmas, we're celebrating Hanukkah, Christmas, and I can't remember the third thing we're celebrating, the African traditional religions, Kwanzaa. So we're celebrating all of that. When, when, when we read about Hanukkah, what they're, what they're celebrating is this restoration of the temple. And it's called the, the Festival of Lights because those oil lamps supposedly burned for eight days with just enough oil for, for one day. And so that's why the Jews at Hanukkah light, uh, light the candles and remember, remember the lights. So with that backdrop, let's, uh, let's turn our Bibles to John chapter 10. I'm going to read uh, beginning in verse 22. I should have said this earlier, I forgot. But listen, if you don't have a Bible, we've got some new Bibles out there. They're the Christian Standard Bibles. Pick one up. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take one of those, our gift to you, so that you can follow along with, with what I'm going to be sharing. And for those of you who use a tablet or a, a phone Bible, I'm, I'm actually going to be using the Christian Standard Bible for the next year year or two. So if you'd like to follow along in your tablet, that's what you'd probably want to pull up, the CSB version of the Bible. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 22. I'm only going to read about half of the text that we're going to look at this morning, but let me start. It says, then the festival of dedication took place in Jerusalem and it was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple of Solomon's colonnade. The Jews surrounded him and asked him, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. I did tell you, and you don't believe, Jesus answered them. The works that I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you don't believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one." Again, the Jews picked up rocks, or rocks to stone him. And Jesus replied, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these works are you stoning me? We aren't stoning you for a good work, the Jews answered, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. It's the wintertime. It's pretty cold. Jesus is in Solomon's colonnade. If you've seen a picture of the temple, you'll remember that most of the temple is a big open courtyard. But on one end of it, there is this area that's under roof, and it's got all these columns that go down there. That's Solomon's colonnade. Jesus finds himself in there. Maybe it's a cold, rainy, misty day, and they're just under the cover of roof. Maybe it's a little bit warmer in the colonnade than it is out in the, out in the patio area. But, but Jesus finds himself there, and the Jewish leadership is able to come around him. And, and they ask him plainly, they say, don't keep us in suspense anymore. Tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? Are you this anointed king that we've been waiting for? Now, I think the reason they ask this, the reason they ask this is because of what we commonly call the messianic secret. I've talked about that several times in this study of John, but let me talk about it again for just a moment. The messianic secret is that Jesus did not readily volunteer his messianic state. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't run his campaign, if you would, on, on that. In fact, there's really only three occasions that we find in the New Testament. He plainly says, I am, uh, I am the Messiah. One of them was by the woman by the well. And I think the other two are with his disciples. One is where Peter, you know, where Peter says, you are the Messiah, you're the son of God. And Jesus says, yes. And there's one other, but I can't remember where it is. But but most of the time, he's telling people, don't tell people. Don't tell people. We call that the messianic secret. Why, why does Jesus not want that to be known? And I think the reason is, uh, I'm pretty sure the reason is, is he's judging Israel. He's hiding himself from Israel. One of the things that he says on a couple of occasions is he says, I'm preaching in parables. You know why he preached in parables? He plainly tells us. He preached in parables so that people would not understand. And you wait, wait a minute. You, you're preaching in parables so that people won't understand? He said, yeah. He's hiding himself from people who have not walked in faith with God. People who should have been walking with faith. faith. And it's a judgment against them. And he says to them here, he says, I've plainly told you. But well, wait a minute. Aren't you contradicting yourself? No, he says, I've plainly told you. Why does, why is he, how has he plainly told them? He's plainly told them because he says, the works that I do. The things that I do, they should tell you clearly who I am. 
So it's not that he's gone out and, and with his lips said, yep, I'm the Messiah. But he's saying that my works have, uh, they surely have spoken to who I am. And so Jesus then tells him, he says, the reason why you don't believe is because you are not my sheep. Of course, this is probably why John is including this exchange right here after the exchange from two and a half months earlier, because the theme is now going to be Jesus, his sheep, and him being the good shepherd. So let's go back and review from last week. How does one become one of Jesus' sheep? How do you become one of Jesus' sheep? The answer is pretty clear, and it's pretty simpler. simple. One simply believes that Jesus is the true shepherd and the good shepherd, by faith responds to the shepherd and begins to follow him. You remember Jesus kind of gave us this metaphorical picture last week of, a, of a, sheep, uh, a sheep pen that is made out of stone out there in the field, and they wouldn't have a door on it, and the shepherd would lay down in front of the door, and that's where the she- sheep would have to come through the sheepfold over him, right? So he'd either get out of the way or they couldn't come out, that kind of thing. And he said, I am the door to the sheepfold. My sheep come through me. So, so the key to being the sheep of God is for, one, for us to believe that he's the good shepherd and to enter through him. Jesus is the door. And you'll remember that Jesus said about his sheep, he said, my sheep hear my voice and and they know me. Look at verse 27. He says it again. He said this last week. He says it again this morning in our text. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Now, the thing that I want you to notice about that verse is I want you to notice the character of God's sheep. Jesus makes it pretty clear and pretty simple. He says, my sheep hear my voice. They know who I am and they follow me. They recognize my voice. And um, Jesus said in John chapter six, he said, the father has given me all that were his. Okay. Jesus says, the father has given me all that were his. I personally believe that that means that all the men and women that had followed God in faith, they were given to Jesus. All of those Jews who believed that, uh, that, that God was who he said he was and by faith were following him, they were the true Israel. He had given, the Father had given them to follow Jesus and they followed Jesus. They recognized his voice as being the voice of God. And so it says here, it says, they know my, they know my voice, they know me, they recognize me. And you know, last week I pulled that Ronald Reagan stunt where I wanted y'all to feel, I wanted y'all to feel what it was like to have somebody important know your name. Well, here, here it's the same thing again. He says, I know them. They hear my voice. I I know their name. But the thing that I want to accentuate as far as the character of the sheep is that the sheep follow the shepherd. Do you see that? My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Here is a characteristic of someone who is a a sheep of God. They follow Jesus. They follow Jesus. You, You may have noticed this, but over the last few years, I've transitioned. I've stopped calling myself a Christian. I call myself a follower of Jesus. And not that I have any problem with Christian. We were first called Christians in Antioch. It means simply little Christ. But the reason why I started calling myself a follower of Jesus rather than a Christian is because I I want to make a statement of what it means to be a Christian. See, because a Christian is somebody who follows Jesus. It's not someone who just says, yeah, I really like this guy, or I, you know, I mean, he, he, I got a positive vibe about Jesus. A Christian, a true Christian is one who follows Jesus. That's why he says, my sheep hear my voice. They know me. I know them, and they follow me. So I know that Jesus is my shepherd, and I hear his voice, and I submit to his lead, and I obey his directives in my life, and I conform myself to his desires. And I've been here a long time, and some of you are so, so close to me, and you know I'm not perfect at this. And I fall so short in this whole area of following Jesus. I'm anything but the perfect sheep. The issue here is not being the perfect sheep. The issue here is being characterized by following the shepherd. 
It's not a perfection that God is saying, my sheep are perfect and they follow me every day exactly the way they ought to. That's not what he's saying, but he is saying that my sheep hear my voice. Let's take his metaphor and let's go back to real sheep. If you go back to real sheep, right? Real sheep know their shepherd's voice. We already talked about this. They're pretty stupid animals. And, and if one of them's running towards the cliff, they all follow. You remember this? They can't see but 15 feet in front of themselves. And uh, they, they, there's just all kinds of things about them that's not very positive. But sheep hear the shepherd's voice and they know his voice and they follow him. And if there's one thing I want you to see this morning is that it's not enough to just own Jesus in name. I've got to be a follower of my shepherd. I've got to, if I'm going to be one of his sheep, then I need to follow him. Now listen, at the end of the day, it's not my business whether you're his sheep or not. Now I realize that I'm still, I'm supposed to be an under shepherd, so it is my business to care. But, but ultimately, at the end of the day, you're, you're his, he's the shepherd. You know, he's the shepherd. And it's his business as to whether you're his sheep or not. But I do want to remind you of the character of the men and women who claim to be his sheep. You hear his voice. And he knows you, and you know him, and you follow him, and you follow him. Notice the destiny of the sheep in verse 28. So first we've got this character of the sheep. They follow me. They hear my voice. They know my voice, and they follow me. And then, then he gives this destiny, and he says, verse 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And I know I sound like a broken record these days, and, and I, I, I sort of apologize, but I really don't apologize for that because I really think this is what being a Christ follower ultimately is all about. Jesus gives me eternal life. I will not perish. Though I die, yet shall I live. Though I die, I shall resurrect. And this time, I will resurrect unto life again, never to die again. And God is going to give me eternal, everlasting life. Eternal life is not for everyone. Eternal life, excuse me, eternal life is for everyone who's willing. But eternal life will not be for everyone. It's conditional. It's conditioned on one's believing on the Lord Jesus and receiving him as your shepherd and following him as your shepherd. Eternal life with God carries a quality about it. You know, I guess as I'm getting older now, maybe it's because of shepherd's death, but I mean, I think about the quality of eternal life. I think about the fact that one day all of us will be together again, and we're going to be together in a world that's made new, and we're going to be together in a world that doesn't have the problems of this life and doesn't have the suffering that you might go through in this life. I I get that there is a quality of eternal, there's a quality about the eternity that God has promised, you know, but eternal life doesn't mean life in a, in a better state than others. Eternal life means eternal life. The opposite of it is destruction. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. You live. And Jesus said, though you die, yet shall you live. And if you live, you will never die. That's what Jesus says here to the Pharisees that are listening, to those who are in leadership. He says, the destiny of my sheep is that they will never die, and I give them eternal life. And then then there's a third thing, I think, in this little exchange here. And I want you to notice how secure we are as his sheep, okay? He says, no one, this is verse 28 again at the end, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. There's actually two thoughts in this, in this text. So I'm going I'm to save one for just a moment, but I, I want to talk about the security aspect of this text. And here's what Jesus is saying to us. No robber, no thief, no enemy can ever take us from Jesus and never take us from the Father. No one can steal us away from him. Jesus is great and God the Father is greater. So in Romans chapter 8, listen to what Paul says. He says, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Who is the one who justifies? Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the 
right hand of God and intercedes for us. Now, here it is. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? I mean, who can steal us out of God's hand? Who can take us out of God's hand? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? In other words, can any of these things, like if you're being persecuted, if you're going through famine, if you've lost everything and you're destitute, if you're in danger, if you're dying by the sword, can any of that steal you away from God, separate you from God? The answer is is a resounding no. As it is written, because of you were being put to death all day long and count it as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That is what Jesus is saying in John chapter 10. And that is also probably why Paul says this. Because I'm in Jesus' hand, and his hand is in the Father's hand, and no one can steal me out of that, out of that hand. You know, all too often we want to argue as Christians, well, does this mean you can never be lost, or does this mean you can be saved and then lost again? And, and, and we argue over that. And you know, I, I've said this, <laughs> you know, I've said everything I've said, you've already heard it. But... Um, I said this before, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. When I, say, when I say it doesn't matter, I really, I mean it doesn't matter. Listen to me carefully what I'm about to say. We all know people who start in faith and don't end in faith. I mean, I have somebody so dear to me that if I talk about him long, I'm going to start to cry. But he says, I was in faith. I believed in Christ. I followed Christ. I loved Christ. I no longer believe in Christ. There may be a God. I'm not willing to say there's not a God, but I don't believe in Christ anymore. So, so tell me about this person. So were they saved when they said they believed? And you can say, well, no, he just never believed, right? He just never believed. Or you can argue and say, oh, yeah, he believed. And, you know, and he, somewhere along the way, he, nobody snatched him out of the hand. He, he gave it up. He, he didn't walk in faith anymore. Here's what I want to say to you. It doesn't really matter which of those things are true because all of us say that if you're not walking in faith, if you're not trusting Christ, then you are not one of his sheep. You understand what I'm saying there? If, if, if you don't claim Christ as your shepherd, you are not one of his sheep. And so the, the, the point I want to say to all of us is nobody can steal you out of God's hands. You, nobody's going to snatch you out of his hands. But as from your perspective, from your perspective, walk in faith, everyone. Continue to press on in faith. Do not abandon faith. You know, in some, I, I don't know why you would abandon faith and then want to say I'm one of his sheep, but you hold on in faith. You walk in faith. Never surrender your faith in the Lord. Now, before I move on to the last part of the text, and really the last part is, well, a couple parts here in the text, but before I move on, let me just take a moment and ask you, seriously, are you one of his sheep? Are you one of his sheep? How would I know? I just told you how you'd know. You hear his voice, and you know him, and he knows you, and you follow him. So are you one of his sheep? That's, the, that's a question for you to answer. Uh, do you listen to his voice? Do you follow him? So you kind of mull that in the back of your head as we go on. I said there were two messages in those last couple of verses. Let's look, let me look at the second message. It's, 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 it's really, really clear. It's not subtle at all. No one will snatch my sheep out of my hand, verse 28. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Here's the second message in that part, and they definitely get it. Jesus is claiming that he's not just an anointed king come from God, but he's God himself. He's claiming that he's one with God. Jesus claimed to be more than a prophet, as the Muslims say, right? He claimed to be more than a spirit being that God had created at some point. He claimed that there was this absolute unity between him and the Father. He would say in another occasion, soon after this, within the next two and a half months, he would say to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen God. 
The Apostle Paul would later on say that Jesus was the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God's like? You want to know what he looks like? See, see the Lord Jesus. So who is Jesus? That's the question we started out with. The answer from Jesus' perspective is that he is creator God. He, he and God are one. There, there is a unity about them that is indivisible, that's inseparable. And, and so we say, you know, I never told you who we say Jesus is. Here's who we say Jesus is. We say the Bible says Jesus is God of very God. He's, he's, he's God become a human being and taking on our humanity so that we might, so that we might know him. And we, we say that he's saying that right here. You remember just a couple of weeks ago, he, he said when they were talking about him, you're not older than Abraham, are you? You remember he said before Abraham was Yahweh, I am Yahweh. In other words, he claims to be God numerous times. Verse 31. Again, the Jews picked up stones, rocks to stone him. Jesus replied, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you, works are you stoning me? We aren't stoning you for a good work, the Jews answered, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. And with those comments that Jesus made, they tried to kill him. They didn't care about the fact that it was illegal. They were infuriated by that. I said a few weeks ago, or a couple of weeks ago, that liberal scholars today claim that Jesus never, or they said Jesus never claimed to be God. One of the things I want you to note is that when the Bible records you saying it, your friends say you said it, and your enemies said you said it, then I tell you what, you said it. If you say you said it, your enemies say you said it, and your friends all said you said it, then, then you said it. So Jesus responds to them in verse 34. Jesus answered, this is not written in your law. I said, you are gods. If those people to whom the word of God came were called gods and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say about the one whom the father has set apart and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. If I do not perform the deeds of my father, do not believe me. But if I do them, even if you don't believe me, do not believe me. In other words, don't believe what I'm saying. Believe the deeds so that you may come to know and understand that I am in the Father and the Father as is in me. Now, Jesus quotes Psalm 82 right here, and he's countering this blasphemy charge. And uh, he's probably doing something similar to what he did in Luke chapter 20. I was going to go there, but let me just tell you, it's the story where Jesus, you know, asked them, asked the Pharisees, he says, I have a question for you. How can Messiah be David's son when David calls the Messiah Lord, when David calls the Messiah God? How, how can he be his son? And, and so he's just challenging their thinking about Messiah. I believe he's doing the same thing here. He's trying to get them to see that Messiah was more than just a man, right? More than just a man. His adversaries are going to stone him. Jesus says, hey, which good work for, which of the works that I've done are you going to stone me? They say, oh, not because you being, not because of your works, but because you claim to be God. And then he quotes them this Psalm. And he says, in your own books, right? In the Psalms, God calls men gods, right? He says, you know, God, let me go back and read it again. He says, if the people to whom the word of God came were called gods, how do you, how do you say it's a blasphemy for me to say I'm the son of God when I'm doing all the very things that God, only God, uh, only God can do? His work surpassed the works of those in Psalm 82. And so he's saying, how is it blasphemy when God himself calls these men gods? How can that be? Now, let's answer that question in just a second, okay? But before I do, one tangential note. Notice that Jesus says, and the scripture cannot be broken. Did you see that? What does he mean by that? You see it there, everybody? He says, and he quotes the Old Testament, and he says, and, and the scripture cannot be broken. Why does he say that? I think it's pretty clear that from Jesus' perspective, the Old Testament cannot be set aside, can't be dismissed. It's not filled with errors. And as far as Jesus was concerned, the Old Testament carried the weight of God's word with it. And he says, you just can't set this aside. So what do you do with the fact that God calls men gods? In what sense does God call men gods? That's the issue. And so here's, here's the answer to that question. In, in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve, and he created them in his image. And by the way, this is what I think it means to be created in the image of God. He gave them 
vice regency over the world. In other words, we as God's creation, we were to steward this earth even as he would as God. So Jesus said, pray like this, that my father's will might be done on earth even as it is in heaven. And so in Genesis, God gives us this this command. He says, go and, and multiply and fill the earth and exercise dominion over the earth, right? And so we have this rulership position over all that God has created uh, on the planet. And so in that sense, I, I think Jesus is calling men gods in that sense, that they have leadership and they have, they have dominion over the earth and they're to exercise rulership over, over the earth. And so we find this throughout the Old Testament. Let me read you. For instance, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 16, we read this. So he, Aaron, this is God speaking to Moses, shall be your spokesman to the people. And he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. Same word. Same word as we find in Psalm 82. You shall be to him as God. Another verse, and this is the same, same thing when, when Moses is going to go to Pharaoh. So the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron as your brother shall be your prophet. So in other words, people who were standing in for God, God calls them like little gods, he uses that word, Elohim. We find it in Exodus 21, 6. Here's another place. Then this is talking about those who judge Israel. Then his master shall bring him to the Judges. That's how we translate the word, but the word is actually gods. You bring him to the gods, and he shall also bring him to the door, and to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall never, and he shall serve them forever. Then another one. If the thief is not found, then the masters of the house shall be brought to the gods, i.e. judges, to see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. So in other words, God is God, our God, the one God, is using the word gods to talk about men who are in leadership positions. Okay, we find that in those verses that I just gave you. And then we find in other places throughout the New Testament where, where we are to submit to authority as if it is unto the Lord, right? So I hope you find, I just want you to understand the text, all right? So here's the, here's the argument Jesus is employing. He's saying if God will call them gods, how much more shall I not be the son of God because of what I do. How can you say I'm blaspheming by calling myself the son of God when God calls the leaders of Israel gods and uses, and uses that term there? And then he says this to them. He says, and if I don't do the works of God, the things that only God can do, don't believe me. But if I do the works of God, even if you don't believe my word, believe me because of my works. Jesus did things only God can do. It's why we follow him. It's why we believe in him. Because Jesus gave sight to the blind, something that nobody could do. Jesus uh, made lame people to walk, restored withered limbs, and he raised the dead. And so here's this one great truth. The Father is in Jesus, and Jesus is in the Father. He plainly said to them, yes, I'm the Messiah, not by his words, but by his deeds. What a startling claim. C.S. Lewis said this, and we've, we've heard not this quote, but this idea from C.S. Lewis. Either Jesus is a totally mad person. This is, this is Lewis. Either Jesus is a totally mad person on the par with a man who claims to be a poached egg, out of his mind, uttering meaningless, garbled, rambling, megalomaniacal statements, or he is telling the truth. If he is telling the truth, he's the most important being in the universe. He is the center of everything. He's the center of life, the giver of truth. Jesus of Nazareth is the center of everything. To ignore him is to grope in darkness, to live in rebellion, to miss out on joy, peace, and love, and end at last as part of a wor the world's fiery judgment. So Jesus quotes Psalm 82 to make his point. If God is willing to call them gods who lead you, how much more am I not the son of God based on what I do. But I think there's another reason for him quoting Psalm 82. Let me read it to you in its entirety. It's only like six or seven. Let me read you the first eight verses anyway. 
God takes a stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and to the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them out of the hands of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is thou who does possess all the nations. Here's what Asaph, the the psalmist, is basically saying. This is an indictment against the rulers of Israel. He's saying to them, you know, God has called you gods, but you're not ruling justly. You're ruling unjustly. You're, you're not vindicating the weak and the fatherless. You're not doing justice to the, for the afflicted and the destitute. You're not rescuing the weak and the needy. You're not delivering them out of the hand of the wicked. And he says, God's going to judge you for that. The reason I think Jesus chose this psalm to make his point, one, is to say to them, hey, God calls you gods. God calls you gods. How much more am I not the son of God? But I think he chose this psalm because it's an indictment on them. They are the wicked. They are the wicked leaders of Psalm 82. The people that are accosting him in the temple, they are the ones who are not doing justice. They are not leading the way God desires for them to lead. Instead of caring for the poor, they're taking advantage of the poor and the fatherless. They're oppressing the weak and judging unjustly. And Jesus is basically saying this psalm to them as an indictment on them. Notice this. God says, I call you gods, but you're going to die like men. You know, at the end of the day, you're still ultimately men and you will die because of your sin. This text says it all, but they cannot see. He says, you are blind because you are not my sheep. He ends the statement by saying, the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. They're one. I'm almost finished. Hang in there with me. I know that was kind of tedious. John chapter 10, verse 39. Then they were trying again to seize him, but he eluded their grasp. So he departed again across the Jordan to the space where John had been baptizing earlier, and he, he remained there. This was more than enough. They, they tried, they picked up stones a second ago. They're trying to hold him, but they can't hold him. And he eludes them and walks out of the temple. You know, one, one person said I, that this was kind of ironic. I thought this was neat. Jesus has twice claimed that as the good shepherd, he not only saves his sheep, but he safely keeps them in his hand. And as the father does likewise in verse 28 and 30, while his sheep cannot be snatched out of his hand, he once, escape, he once again escapes their hand. God's contradicting or contrasting, not contradicting, contrasting the Lord's power with their power. And they walk out, he walks out of the temple and he goes to where John used to be baptized. We don't know exactly where that is, but people obviously know where it is and they go to him and, and, and there he's preaching and teaching. Verse 41, many came to him and said, John never did a sign, but everything John said about this man was true and many believed in him there. Yeah, we don't know exactly where he went, but wherever it was, people went and they would say this. You know, John the Baptist never did a miraculous sign, but everything he said about Jesus has been true. And they followed him. All right, that's the end of the text for this morning. What does everyone want to know? They want to know who is Jesus. I think deep inside they knew, they just were not willing, they were not willing to believe. It's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting that you don't have anybody in culture today, and maybe I shouldn't say anybody, we don't have, that I know of, any kind of movement that says that Jesus was a madman. I've, you know, I mean, I've been, to, I've been, I've had some higher education. I've, I've never known people to try to dismiss Jesus by claiming he was insane, right? I've never, I've actually never heard people try to dismiss Jesus by claiming he was evil, that he was just a, that he was, oh, it's all about self-interest or whatever. You remember C.S. Lewis's logical um, analogy that Jesus claimed to be God, and so there's three appropriate responses to that. One of them is he's lying, he's not God. Uh, He's not lying, he's just crazy, he thinks he's God, and he's not God, right? Or the third one, he is who he claims to be. Those are your three options. He's either lying, and so his, 
His ulterior, his motives must be uh, wrong or bad. He's either not aware that he's not God and he's claiming that makes him kind of crazy. And then the final thing, he's Lord. People do not try to say that Jesus is mad. People do not try to say that Jesus is not a good person. So really that sort of leaves only one alternative. And that is that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And the mystery of his existence is that God was willing to become like us. He's, he's willing to become us. He, God, this God who creates everything is willing to become like me and live like me and submit himself to his own creation. And that is amazing. But that is the claims of biblical Christianity. That's the claims of the Bible as to who Jesus is. God become a person like us. And so this morning I end by just inviting you to do one of three things. One of them, I'd like to invite you to respond to the invitation of Jesus and and John actually. Because John at the end of this letter, when he finishes, this is what he says. He says, Jesus performed many signs in the presence of his disciples and that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the anointed king, the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So the whole reason John wrote this book is that you might be willing to become one of the sheep, one of Jesus' sheep. You can become one of Jesus' sheep. He's the good shepherd. He's the true shepherd. And he invites you to be a part of his his sheepfold. As God, God could... God could make us all be part of a sheepfold. God could just, just as easily have created us to be in a sheepfold. He could, have, he could even now just make us all be in a sheepfold if he wanted. But the truth is God has chosen not to do that. In his sovereignty as king, he's chosen to leave responsibility with you of whether you will embrace him as the true and good shepherd. There, there is, if you would, a response needed from you. Now, Jesus wants every one of us in his sheepfold. The reason I know that is he says, he says that numerous times. But he also says it's up to you, whosoever will. It's not going to force you. It's not going to make you. Okay. Now, he promises to make everyone who comes to Christ and comes in Christ, he promises to make every one of you, you know, a part of his eternal kingdom. But really, the response is yours. So I want to invite you this morning to not suppress the truth anymore and receive Jesus as your king. Receive Jesus as your true and good shepherd. My second invite is for you, if you've already, maybe you've already come to that spot, hey, follow him. Follow him. And the first place to follow him is to be baptized, to submit yourself to baptism and be baptized. And so I really want to, I want to, that's my second invite to you. If you are already his follower, be baptized. And the third thing is that I invite us to consider for just a moment is how incredible it is that the good shepherd knows me. Y'all made fun of my Reagan thing last week and I get it. It was kind of stupid and I don't even know that it succeeded at what I wanted it to accomplish, right? But what I wanted you to feel was how, how cool it would be for somebody like Ronald Reagan to know my name, right? To actually know me personally. I mean, and I know I, I can't, we can't gender that up. I mean, we can't, we can't make that in our hearts, but it's, I mean, God knows my name. He knows me personally. And so for the next couple of minutes, what I'd like you to do is just, for those of you that know him, man, why don't you just thank him? Why don't you just contemplate on that? Man, Jesus, God knows my name. And Ronnie's going to come and, uh, Ronnie, come on up. Ronnie's going to come, or however they're going to do it, and they're going to do this song for, is it just you, Ronnie, on the guitar? Okay, Ronnie's going to sing for us the song uh, that I talked about last week. Y'all just listen and just respond to the Lord in your heart.
time began, my life was in His hands. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls, and He hears me when I call. I have a father, he calls me his own, he'll never leave me, no matter where I go, he knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls, and He hears me when I call. He knows, He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls, and He hears me when I call. He hears me when I call. He hears me when I call. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for knowing my name. Thank you for Thank you for creating all of us and thank you for letting us be the sheep of your pasture, the sheep of your hand. Thank you for the promise of keeping us and that nothing can steal us from you. Thank you for the promise of eternal life to those of us who follow you. Thank you for all the, all the good that comes with that. The reuniting with all of our loved ones, the being together forever, to the being in a kingdom ruled by you with no more sin and no more failure and no more wrong. How we look forward to that. We would say, Father, send, send Jesus again. Jesus, come again. We long for your return, long for you. Lord, we know that with your return comes, comes the end and, and comes the institution of your kingdom here on earth. And so we would say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Holy Spirit, we want to thank you for indwelling each of our hearts and for helping us. Thank you for that, that we are not alone as we wait for the return of Jesus, that you have given us yourself so that we might be changed and conformed and be like you. Thank you for the hope and the peace and, and just all the things that you give us in Jesus' name. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed.